This morning's scripture reading will be from uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses one, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning, right after a wonderful Christmas. I hope you enjoyed family and friends. Uh, we're going to jump right into it this morning. We'll be in the first chapter of Hebrews. The first chapter. Now you can follow along in your Bible, on your iPad, your iPhone, or if you'd like to, to, to follow along in the back of the, uh, the bulletin that would you, you were given when you came in, there's also a, a summary of what we're going to talk about this morning. This is a time to talk about Jesus. You hear a lot. Most of our thoughts during Christmas are focused on the Jesus that was in the manger, the birth of Christ. Uh, but it's a good time to think about Jesus. Uh, we've had some great singing this morning. Uh, I've enjoyed those songs as they focused our thoughts on Jesus. The, the verse that Dan read a few minutes ago was very appropriate. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is a good time of year to do that. And it occurs to me that when you think about Jesus, there's really three important questions. Who is he? What did he do? And why is it important? Now, the three questions, typically, if you're going to answer those questions, you would go to the Gospels to answer those questions. But that's not what we're going to do today. We're going to look in the book of Hebrews. Now, we're going to spend all day on Hebrews, and I know we're only going to have 20 minutes this morning and 20 minutes tonight, so you'll have lots of off time. But we're going to spend all day in the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend the first part of the book this morning, and then this afternoon we'll look in chapter 13, the conclusion to Hebrews. And so if you have time, I always have homework when I talk to you, so there's a little bit of homework. If you have time this afternoon, uh, take about five minutes and scan the book of Hebrews just to get a feel for what it's about. Get a feel for the arguments in the book and what some of the subjects are. Now we'll talk more about that tonight, a little bit this morning, more about it tonight, because I want to move us tonight to that conclusion, because the conclusion of the book tells us what we should do when we walk out that door, when we leave this assembly, how we should greet everybody that we meet, how we should act toward everybody that we should meet, and the activities and things that are on our minds. And so that's what we'll do this afternoon. If you have more than five minutes this afternoon, and it takes about 30 minutes to read the entire book, and so just read it through. It would be a great setup for tonight. Well, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written... Uh, don't know who the author was, but it was probably written to Jewish Christians. We don't know where they were, but there's so many references to the system of Judaism, so many references to the sacrificial system. The book clearly was written to somebody that understood Judaism, and they appear to be very mature Christians. So let me say that again. It was written to mature Jewish Christians, a congregation that probably had been around for several years. And we don't know exactly when it was written, but I would guess, an educated guess, would be about 65 A.D., probably 30 or 40 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So, we, so the letter is written to a mature congregation, a congregation that had solved a lot of its problems, but still had a few. And so the book is written really for two purposes. When you look at it and you read through it, you'll see two purposes that really jump out at you when you get to the, to the book of Hebrews. The first purpose is it appears that those mature Jewish Christians 
we're thinking about turning back to Judaism. Now, we could argue a little bit about the purpose, but I think most people would agree that, that it was mature people thinking about turning back, thinking about giving up Jesus and going back, it appears, to Judaism. Now, you might say, well, that's the first purpose. What's the second purpose? Because the first purpose doesn't really apply to me. I don't really know of anybody in here that's thinking about giving up Christ and turning back to Judaism. That's not something that's real common in Colombia. Uh, it does happen in the world, but, but not here. And we don't know why they were turning back, but, but it, is, it was an important message for their time, but it's also an important message for our time. Because he says, don't turn back, and then the second purpose, persevere, endure, keep your eyes, keep your focus, keep your thoughts on Jesus. That's the second purpose. So how could this possibly apply to us today? We've just spent 16 weeks in the college class studying the book of Hebrews. And we were trying to figure out how does this apply to us because nobody in the classroom was thinking about turning back to Judaism. But you know, we may not be turning back to Judaism, but we struggle every day with conforming to the world. We struggle every day with turning back to ourself. Jesus said his great invitation was deny, you know, if any man would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we struggle with turning back to self. We, we struggle every day with turning back to the security that the world provides, the security of 401Ks and Roth IRAs and big bank accounts. See, we struggle with turning back as Allison Carter said in our class a few weeks ago, and I think it was a really in, a insightful comment, was we struggle with complacency. Turning back with the momentum we have in Christ, but just being satisfied with what we have. And what the author of Hebrews would say to us today, he wouldn't say, well, don't turn back to Judaism. He would say, don't turn back from Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't turn back to complacency. Don't turn back to self or security. And don't turn back, as is so prevalent this time of year, don't turn back to your stuff. Don't turn back to having more stuff than the person that lives next to you. Don't turn back to having nicer stuff than the person that's sitting next to you. Don't turn back to that. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And so I think that's what the book is about, and certainly that twofold purpose. And so as we look at the book, keep that purpose in mind. And it's fascinating how he starts out, because the very first sentence of the book. The very first verse. I don't like the verse markings in it. You'll see that they cut up our thoughts. Whoever put the verses in there didn't understand relative clauses. They didn't understand dependent clauses. They didn't understand sentences because they chopped things up so bad you almost can't follow it. And that's why I wrote it out the way that I did. It gives you a better feel for the flow of the passage. And so it says in the past... God, now, he's going to draw a contrast to these first two little sentences. Two, uh, it's really one sentence in two parts. There's going to be a contrast. So think about the contrast that's first. What, think about the first thing that he's going to contrast. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, a Jewish audience would have understood that right away. And in fact, you would understand that right away because we've just spent a year working through the Bible. We understand that in the past... During the time of the Old Covenant and other covenants, during the time of the Old Testament, God spoke through His prophets in many times, in various ways, at different places. We saw that. We see it when He spoke to Adam and Eve. We saw it when He spoke to Moses, when He spoke to Abraham, when He spoke to Samuel, Samson. Over and over, He spoke at different times in different places. In some ways, 
the revelation was not complete. It was, it was kind of continued to come through the prophets. And it was not once and for all. And so as he sets this up, the Jews would have understood it, and I think today we understand it. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. Notice at the start of verse 2. But in these days, He has spoken to us by His Son. See, He's contrasting. In the past, He spoke to the prophets. Today, and He says, in these last days, something that has happened, we're in those last days right now. This is not apocalyptic literature. He's not talking about something way off in the future. He's talking about right now, in 65 AD, whenever this was written. It's now. So in these days, He's spoken to us by His Son. Now, in that, you get the sense of, in the past, when God was speaking to the prophets, it was many times, in various ways, in many different messages. But in these last days, He's spoken. It's final. Jesus has been here. There's no more message coming. There are no more prophets coming. The message is finished. And Jesus has now spoken that. And so He starts that off. Now, the reason He starts it off, I think this is really the thesis of the book, this, these first, this really this first, uh, first uh, sentence, really two, uh, one verse and second verse, half of that second verse, is really the thesis of the book because he's setting up the old in the past with, and comparing it to the new. And clearly he's implying that the new is better. And if I had to pick a key word for the book of Hebrews, it would be superior. Because 13 times the author of the book uses the word superior. He talks about Jesus being superior to angels. Jesus being superior to Moses. Jesus being superior to to, uh, Joshua. Jesus being superior to the worship system in the Old Testament. Jesus being superior to the sacrificial system. Jesus being superior to temple worship and tabernacle worship. Those are the arguments that if you have five minutes to go through the Bible or to go through Hebrews this afternoon, those are the arguments you're going to see all the way through the end of chapter 10. Jesus is superior. And He sets that up for us in the very first few verses. In the past, God spoke. Now He speaks to us by His Son. And so as we begin to to define who is Jesus, clearly we see that He is better than the old system, better than the prophets revealing things, And more importantly, right there at the end, it says, by His Son. Now, that's an important word. He is the Son of God. If you're trying to answer these questions of who is Jesus, I didn't leave any blanks. I put the whole verse there. But what I'd like for you to do, if you like to write on things, you like to scribble, I'm going to ask you to circle some things. And the first thing I'd like for you to circle is Son. Because Jesus is the Son of God. What does that imply? What does that tell you? It implies a relationship. It implies authority. Certainly more authority than the prophets had. It's a big word. And what he'll do now is launch off into a series of three relative clauses explaining what that means. Now this is a different description of Jesus if we're trying to answer that question, who is Jesus? This is a different description than what you'll get in the Gospels. This is what many refer to as an exalted description. Others have called it the sevenfold description of Jesus. This is deep. And it makes sense when you read the whole book because the thrust and, and really the reason the book is written was so that the author's audience it would raise their faith to another level. He wanted them to move their faith to another level. He wanted to, them to take it to the next level. 
And they could only do that by focusing on Jesus. And so first he starts off that he's the Son of God. And then we see that first phrase, and I've got them listed in seven, not exactly by the, uh, the clauses, but, but pretty close. And so we're going to see this description of Jesus. First, whom he appointed heir of all things. Circle heir. That's the first part of the sevenfold description. He is the heir. This Jesus that we've just celebrated his birthday, this, his birth, the date that, that some say he was born on, this Jesus who we've sung songs about and read verses about this morning, this Jesus is the heir of all things. Circle heir. What does heir imply? Heir implies choice. When you make somebody your heir, you do it through a will, and it requires will. It requires a choice. So he is the son of God. God has appointed him. It was a conscious decision. He is the heir of all things. He's heir of everything. Heir of some things? No. It's very clear there. The Greek is very clear. He is the heir of all things. So as he starts out this description of the Son of God, he says he's the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Circle made. Some of your versions may have creator, uh, or he's actually the agent of creation. He was involved in creation. So Jesus, is, as the Son of God, is an heir, but he's also the creator, which, of course, implies power, implies authority, implies doing what God told him to do. And so he's the agent of creation. He made the universe. Once again, that relates to all things. He made all things. The Son, the third uh, part of the sevenfold description, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. That's one of the most beautiful phrases in the Bible. The radiance of God's glory. Now, we don't really understand glory, but think of light and God and the light. And Jesus is the reflection of God. He's the reflection. He's the radiance of God's glory. If you want to know God, you look at Jesus. If you want to know God's character and learn about God's character and learn about who God is, you look at Jesus because He's the radiance of God's glory. You see how this is kind of an exalted description of Jesus, not the type of description we typically see every day, and especially at this time of year when we're focused on the manger, we're focused on on Jesus as a baby. So he's the heir, he's the creator, he's the radiance of God's glory, and he's the exact representation, the exact representation of his being, circle representation. So you've got heir, he's made, representation, and radiance circle. He is the exact representation. The Greek word there is used in other places, both in extra-biblical writings too. And it has to do with an impression. So when you're making a coin, and it's used very specifically in some extra-biblical writings on making a coin. You have a lump of metal, you have a stamp, you stamp it, and you have the exact representation which is here. It's interesting that the writer here uses a very technical term to explain who Jesus is. He's the exact representation of God. And so we're beginning to get this very full picture of who Jesus is. Sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Circle sustaining. He sustains us. He keeps us going. He provides for us. He, makes, he helps us deny ourselves. Helps us to take up the cross. Helps us to follow Him. He sustains us. So not only is he the heir and the creator and the radiance and the representation of God, he is the sustainer. 
after, and then we really begin this version, the ESV uses, or NIV uses a new sentence here, after he provided purification for sins. Now let me stop in that little clause. After he had provided purification of sins. That's not a word we typically use. Typically we use the word forgiveness of sins. It's the same concept. Uh, but I think he's writing to a Jew Jewish audience that so they would have understood purification. Philip talked a little bit about it a few moments ago, of this idea of being cleansed, being holy, being sanctified, being purified. Today we call it being forgiven of sins. You know, in this great story that we've been going through this last year, it starts out where God and man are together in Genesis 1. And the bookend is in Revelation 20 that we finished on last week, where God and man are together again. God comes down to dwell with man again. But in between, starting in Genesis 3, there's a barrier between man and God. What is that barrier? It's sin. For the Jew, he would call it because it's impure. See, we see it just a little bit different, but it's the same thing. There's a barrier between man and God. And so the Old Testament, that whole idea of going, these sacrifices, that once-a-year day of atonement, those, those were temporary. They were rolling forward. It didn't really provide the purification of sins that the people needed once and for all. Jesus provided that. So at this time of Christmas, when we're thinking about Jesus, I think one of the ways to define him is that he, he provides purification for sins. We would say forgiveness of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The majesty in heaven. Circle heaven. Where is he today? He's in heaven. Sitting at the right hand of God implies authority and a decision by God to allow him to sit there. It also, I think, implies that his work, as far as revelation, is finished. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. There is no, there's no more revelation to come. There's nothing, it, Jesus has given it to us. And so we see this beautiful sevenfold description of Jesus. And then he finishes in verse 4. This is a transition sentence. If we're trying to define who he is, for the Jew, he would continue on. But, as he does in the letter. But, but, so this is a little bit obscure to us. But it, this, we see the first use of that word superior. And this is the first argument of about 13 arguments going through chapter 10. So he, Jesus, became much superior to the angels became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Well, that's a little, a little obscure to us. Why angels? Well, if you're a first century Jewish audience, you would know about angels. Angels really were, I don't know any better way to say this, but one step down from God as far as heavenly creatures. There really was nobody above the angels. You know, we could argue a little bit about that. But for the first century Jew, there was, the angels were what, you know, they knew angels. They knew it from the Old Testament scriptures. You know the verses where angels showed up. And so what he's saying here is that it's not angels you need to turn back to because the Jews, Jewish Christians are thinking about rejecting Jesus and going back to angels. It's not the angels you need to go back to. It's stay with Jesus. Jesus is superior to the angels. The angels, don't, angels do a lot of things. Uh, in the Old Testament, they're involved in a lot of ways in people's lives and, and putting out God's word just like the prophets. But, G, but Jesus, they don't provide salvation like Jesus does. They don't provide purification for sins. There's no atonement with the angels, and thus Jesus is, is better or superior. I think that's a great definition of that first little part, and it sets up the rest of the book, because the rest of the book talks about Jesus. And so who is he? Well, we've had that sevenfold description. Now we get to knowing who he is. What did he do? If you go to the Gospels, I'm studying the Gospel of Mark right now, and you're going to get a little bit of a different view of who Jesus is. 
And what he did, and if, you, if you're trying to answer the question of what he did, you'll say that he's a teacher, a preacher, he healed people, he cast out demons, uh, he raised people from the dead. That's kind of what he did. But it's interesting that the author of Hebrews doesn't really tell you any of that. We're going to skip over a few verses over to chapter 2, verse 9. But we're going to see that the description the author of Hebrews gives of the activities of Jesus is a little different. And even if we, we sit back, I, I taught a Bible study a number of years ago when I was at the University of Tennessee, and I still remember this Bible study because it was in a fraternity and there were, there were very few people that were believers in that Bible study, and most of them just wanted to ask me questions and shoot down my faith. But I remember when I, had, I started Bible study off with Jesus is and let them answer the rest of that. And so I got lots of answers like he's a good man, good teaching, good moral person. Uh, none of those, he may be a good man, he may have been a good man, he may have been a good teacher, but though that's not who Jesus was. Jesus is our Savior. He's our Lord. And so sometimes we, we don't, if you, even if you take that view of Jesus, that he's just a good man and a good moral teacher, you're not going to understand this next verse. It's going to hit you like a brick wall. Because Jesus didn't do anything bad to people when he was on the earth. He blasted some people. He said some bad things about one group, uh, one, several groups of religious leaders. But look at what this author chooses to emphasize about what Jesus did. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We know who Jesus was. We have this exalted description and then we get told, we're told what he did, and the answer is, he suffered. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. It's, it's not pretty. The picture painted is not easy. It's not fair. Even if he was just a human being, and only a human being, none of that really makes sense. He suffered death. Who was Jesus? Yes, he's exalted. Yes, he's an heir, and he's a creator, and he's his representation. He's a sustainer. Yes, he's sitting at the right hand of God. What did he do? He suffered. It doesn't really make sense that he would suffer death. That's what this author chose to emphasize in the book of... Now remember, he's writing to mature Christians. So I think he's writing to an audience like this. An audience that, for the most part, have people that have been Christians for years. And he's explaining who Jesus is and what he did. And he wanted to emphasize this idea of suffering. Now, question number three. We'll get to the hard question. Why is he important? Why is what he did important? For this reason, this is chapter, verses 17 and 18 if you're following in the Bible, chapter 2. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I want you to zero right in on that word atonement. Circle it. Circle suffered up above it and circle atonement. Tough word. Philip mentioned it. As is typical of classes when both of us teach, he brings up something difficult and then I have to explain it. So I'm going to try my hardest to explain atonement. Atonement's a difficult word. It's a big word. It's a theological word. We don't get it. In Bible school, they try to give you a, a simple definition at 
one, atonement, you're at one with God. Actually, that's simple. Actually, that's a pretty good definition of it. Atonement, I think if you looked in a theological dictionary, you'd find something like God has reconciled sinners to himself. The process of atonement is that God has reconciled sinners to himself through the sacrificial work of Jesus. Still a little difficult. Atonement. Remember the story. Starts out in Genesis 1. God is with man, dwelling with man, which is what really God wants to do, which is an amazing thought in itself. God just wants to be with us. But then it separates. There's a sin in chapter 3. There's a barrier. That barrier has to be broken down. There was a barrier, barrier of impurity, a barrier of unholiness, a barrier of, we would say today, sin between God and man. In the old way, you would sacrifice a dove or sacrifice a goat or an oxen. And once a year you would go and the priest would go in. And the priest, the high priest, would offer sacrifices for the whole community, but he couldn't do it unless he first offered sacrifices for himself. And then, they, you know, the whole scapegoat sent the goat out into the... You understand that day of atonement, the Yom Kippur. You understand how that all fits together. That has to do with atonement. What atonement does is remove... It's God's action removing the barrier. That's what atonement is. We are once again made at one with God. That's atonement. Now look, it's a difficult word, and, and, and I think as God was revealing this to his writers through the process of inspiration, I think that we're trying to use human words that are translated to describe a concept that's just a difficult concept. Because even what I've just told you doesn't explain really the how and the why. Although we kind of understand it was through the blood and we kind of understand that life is through blood, so it required the, a death, a substitutionary death in the Old Testament. We see that saying. You kind of get that, but you don't really... It's, it's really a little difficult to understand. And I think that's why the writers of the New Testament use lots of different words for atonement. The same concept. And so you'll, as you read through, you'll see Paul... You know, atonement is kind of the, the language of the, uh, the religious leaders, the educated level, the people that studied in the court, and the, and the uh, synagogues, and around the temple. And so atonement, they would kind of understand that. But, but the, Bible, the New Testament uses other words, such as reconciliation. Paul uses that. It's the language of relationships. We get that. A reconciled relationship. That's the same thing that atonement does. That's what God provides for us. Uh, redemption where you pay something for something, that substitution of something. It's the same concept. Redemption. And that's kind of the language of the marketplace, kind of a commercial one. Justification. Language of lawyers. That's, it's the same idea of man and God. Need, there's a barrier between them, and they need to be reconciled. They need to be made at one. You need to have atonement. Uh, for soldiers, the book of Revelation uses the word victory because you're separated, and then you have a victory. You're back at one. See, the New Testament uses a lot of words for that same concept because it's very important. Why is he important? He's important because of that atonement, because of what he did for us. He removed that barrier for us. I think this is a good time of year to look at, at who Jesus is in a little bit more depth. Look at, look at what he did and then why it's important. You know, as, as I study this, there's lots of things I just don't understand as I go through it. I really don't get... I understand the words, but I don't fully understand atonement. I don't understand the why. I don't totally get it. I don't understand who wrote the book of Hebrews. You can study that and study that. Some will 
adamantly say Paul, some will adamantly say somebody else, some will just say anonymous. It's tough to try to figure out. I'm not sure where the community of believers was when he wrote it. There's just lots of things I don't know. But as we conclude today, I can say with confidence that there's three things, and this book of Hebrews really emphasizes it probably more than others. There's three things that I know without a, just without a shadow of a doubt. God's in command. He's got a plan. And through atonement, He wants you to be a part of it. If you need to be a part of God's plan, we ask that you come forward as we stand and sing.